Welcome, everybody, to the Natural Born Hunter podcast brought to you by Mountain Ops. Mountain Ops is a supplement company that specializes in the needs of the hunter. If you need a little more protein in your diet, boom, hit up the Magnum. Three different sources of protein in there, so it absorbs in your body at different points in time, making it last longer so you can get stronger. You can also check out their Yeti pre-workout, perfect for hitting max lifts, PRs, getting your head in the game, and getting after it. They also have Enduro. For those of you who are a little more cardio-based in your workouts, looking to charge hard for long hours at a time. Without further ado, let's fire this puppy up. I'll give you some background on, on Jake. He is a former Chippendales dancer who happens to have guided a sheep hunt to get the largest sheep in California. Really? Yeah. I got that all correct, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you cut some of the corners, but essentially the information is right on point. Yeah. Uh, how big a sheep was it? <laughs> oh, uh, he doesn't it was care how many corners were cut. Directly, yeah. How big was the sheep? Or how long I danced for? Nothing. Hey, man, you know, us, us dancers got to stick together. So that stuff's a different brotherhood, right? But no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but he did ask how big the sheep was. Yes. Oh, it was a uh, 187-inch desert. Wow. Uh, how long ago was that? Uh, 2011. Gee. Yeah. Jake's a sheep guy. He guys a bunch of sheep hunts. Big ram. Hunts. Yeah. Been fortunate. Yeah. Well, cool. Are we? Uh, so, did you guys start it all, Will, or you just? We dicked around basically for half an hour, and then well, I we, cut so you... the feed just so people had something to listen to. But now oh. I'll go in with a brand new. This will be a brand new reboot. We're rebooting. Oh, okay. This Sorry. is this is this is chapter two. The good. This is where it starts getting good. That was like the foreword to the novel. It's one of those cha- It's one of those books that has four hundred chapters, and every chapter is a six page. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Like here's the thing. We have our most direct competitors. Some of them have very cut and professionally kind of. They do real good editing and professionally produced stuff. And we're more like, listen, we're just gonna go in there. And give it all we got, hit it as hard as we can, and just let magic happen. Record it all and edit nothing, cut nothing. <laughs> well, essentially, video and that that kind of format, it is better when it's left to its own device, right? Better when it's down and dirty. That's the way I the way I see it. Cut through all the crap, right? We're trying to make art. We're trying to make art here, you know. And some <laughs> people have an don't open conversation, right? Yeah, some people just don't appreciate the art form. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, I've been interviewed quite a few times at this point by a lot of people that are fairly unprepared or overprepared. So I'm actually interested to see if you've done any freaking research whatsoever or whether you're going to freestyle this the whole way along and ask me questions about skateboarding without any basis or understanding of it. You don't even know how many <laughs> Netflix documentaries I have watched on skateboarding. I actually finished one a couple weeks ago. You, you made the first carnal mistake as you bought a shoe out. And I don't know. That's a van shoe. All right, here we and go. And you bought a Nike dunk in camouflage. Okay, let's look at this, though. Let's look at this. On a level of sexiness, <laughs> yes. You pretty much slapped me in the face. You do realize that, right? But, but this is a lesson. I'm teaching you a lesson, Jeff. You may be What's some great shoe designer who, you know, brought the resurgence of a separate style of footwear back to skateboarding where people, I guess, like to feel a skateboard. But for, you know, people who just want to look good, 
in a really cool camouflage set of Nikes, this is the perfect shoe. How many Nikes do you know of and, or other shoes you know of that come in real tree AP? Uh, currently, not very many. No, not in the Bass Pro, Bass Pro Shop or one of those spots, right? Actually, I'm I, sure think, they I think something happened and Nike no longer has any real tree AP dunks in production. I had to get those on eBay. And, you uh, know what? I'm sure they looked through just a random swatch book of available fabrics and went, that's the one right there. And Having that's no. And that's why yeah. we got you. That's why I got you tonight. This, is, this was all just an elaborate scheme. To, to get keep it real you. or to get me fired from Vans? Which one? No, here's why. Here's why. Because I need you to go to Vans. And I need you to say, Vans, you guys, I know you started as a boat shoe company. And then you worked your way into skateboarding and just some really cool looking shoes. And then I came up with this idea for the vulcanized rubber to go back into skateboarding shoes. And now I got another revolutionary idea that's going to take this company even further. And it's My buddy real Will treatment. Bradley would like us to introduce some camo, <laughs> camouflage <laughs> shoes to our lineup. Just it's that shoe and like some cool, like, I don't care if, you, I know you're a Kuyu fan. You can put in Kuyu. Maybe, maybe we could put it in like the First Light XD, maybe even like a Cryptic Mandrake. You know, just some really, really So you think padded. the next move in, in uh, street, street fashion is taking the, the latest camouflage pants that actually do their job? And putting them on kid shoes to wear on the street. How did all this mountaineering clothing like North Face get into the street? Product development. Exactly. And if only mountaineers wore these clothing lines, they wouldn't be doing so good, would they? It's, it's arguable that, that, man, I almost got myself in trouble right there. See, that's the problem. <laughs> We're going off the, off, off the record real quick. <laughs> Jake's saying this. Jake is now saying all of these things. <laughs> no, well, I had to, I had to bite my tongue because the company that owns Vans owns North Face. That's so, right. <laughs> be very so, Let, so what, what did I miss? What, do you work for Vans, Jeff? I'm a skateboarder, pro skateboarder. So, you, uh, are you sponsored by them? Then is that what? Sponsored by them. I've had like okay signature product with them since 1998, um, and I've worked very closely with the brand on, you know, a bunch. R and D. Yeah, and I've worked firsthand on all of my product and on some other product for the brand since then, since 98. So I've always kind of worked directly on product along with being a skateboarder. I was interested in it because the thing with that is it's much like, you know, hunting. you buy, buy some guys like one kind of rifle, some guys swear on another brand. But if that guy has to use that brand all year round, like if Jake gives me a rifle, it's a Remington, and I can only use Remington, and my arms are short, and all the Remingtons are freaking built stockier and bigger. That's going to be a tough battle, right? Sure. And then if you throw your name on it, and you don't even use it. <clears throat> so it's kind of that, where like I, I've skateboarded since I was 12 years old, and I power through product, I mean, and I just smash it and rip it and break it and everything. And when I do signature product, I might have to wear a style of shoe for three straight years, one model. So if it gives me blisters, or if I can't hit the target every go, you know? Sure. Then, so I took more of an active role in it because I actually, you know, otherwise it ends up, it ends up being a product I'm not, I can't kind of put my name behind or support or doesn't stand the test of time or has not enough time to like test it out to see if it even works. Um, yeah, so. That's, that's, that's cool to hear, man, just because we've talked on the subject of representing companies in the past 
more so from a startup level where people just want to be a part of something, you know, just to say that they're part of a team. And they don't care if, if they've ever used the product before. They just want to say they're part of a team. Yeah. To hear somebody on the flip side to say, look, I am part of this team, but because I am part of that team, they need to, we need to work together to make it the best product because, like you say, you're not selling yourself. You're helping sell the product, and you're helping ensure that what you're using is um, beneficial to yourself as well as the, from, a, from a sales perspective. Yeah. You know? You're also the customer with all product, all, all outdoor product, sure. all street product. You owe the customer a, a certain uh, uh, quality, number one. Um, but number two, you, you also, with, with product that's performance product, like your QU fabrics and QU gear or whether it's vans, boots for skateboarding or whatever it is, um, if you're going to say that's the best that there is and you don't know if it's the best, then you're lying. I, so I, it's got your name on it and you're lying. Well, that's even more so, right? But I, I made that same... What I like to call a douche. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I oh. made that similar. Uh, I, what you just said, I said it on, a, on another podcast very similarly. If, if you don't know if it's the best and you're just because somebody's giving you something and you're saying it's the best, it carries no weight. It carries yeah. no clout. And there are certain things that are arguable because there's products that are <clears throat> arguably competitive and, and side by side. You know, one's potentially as good as another, and that's an arguable thing based off comfort, based off of fit. Um, how a guy might sweat like if you're talking about like hunting equipment or hunting gear sure some guys like certain fabrics because whatever they breathe well in that and some guys can't wear that same fabric yep like that with some of the fabrics some of the stuff um, that I use I absolutely swear by it and other stuff I don't like sure. and other people say the opposite yeah you know so it is personal same with with, with uh, boots yeah with boots and stuff if you want to look at my ankles, I broke both my ankles a couple of times. I had surgery, like multiple surgeries. My ankles are like that, yes. just from like buildup of just bone and scar tissue and mess. So certain boots and certain just kill my feet. Sure. Now, and then my feet are generally, this sound, it's never good to talk about feet, man. <laughs> hey. But you know yeah, what I'm saying? You should give up skateboarding, bro. That sounds like a dangerous sport. <laughs> it, it, it can be. It can be. You're fighting concrete <laughs> you're, you're attacking concrete for a living, so that catches up to you. So you know? I, want, I want to go back to this a little, though, because Jeff's being a little modest. From the research, the little bit I did, I discovered Jeff is the reason. No, I can't go anything. Is that a cut? That? No, that was me just having fun. I was going <laughs> to say, maybe I am going somewhere that's really going to get him into trouble, discovering <laughs> things. Got a lot of knives in this building. At one time in Malaysia. <laughs> Anyways, so Jeff is the reason that. Do you remember back in like it must have been the late '90s? The skate shoes were kind of big, kind of like pillows on your feet. Me? You asking yeah. me a question? Yeah, you. I'm I'm not into skateboarding in the the least bit, so I'm just listening and learning. So right. <laughs> shoot, well, man. Well, these shoes, even for those of us who didn't skateboard but may have worn some, to just look cool, kind of like these sweet Nike Dunks I got here. <laughs> they, <laughs> just the reason they went from big and puffy. Sheet or sweet? <laughs> Sheet. <laughs> I like Jeff. <laughs> so, so, so he's the reason they switched to the thinner, more able to feel your board style. Of 
he was the proponent of that. Kind of reminds me of like, any of you guys ever follow skiing, like big mountain skiing at all? No one here. All right, I'm, I'll, I'll be on my own with this one. But yeah, for uh, those of our listeners who do listen to or uh, follow big mountain skiing, there was a moment in skiing where Shane McConkie told his sponsor company, "Listen, we need to make skis for powder more like water skis." And they're like, nobody believed him. So what he did is he took him up to a pair of water skis up to Alaska and ripped this huge line down the side of the mountain on the water skis. And everyone was like, all right, you might be onto something. Heavy. And that's what but changed we, them. It was yeah, that moment, that moment of brilliance. Responsibility, though. That comes back to if you're making product and, you know, and you're part of the development process, it comes back to your, your responsibility to push the boundaries of what's possible with that fabric or that, you know, um, product, whatever it is, whether it's a gun, a knife, or whatever it is. Um, um, I think as a brand and a business, it's your duty to continue to push the possibilities of manufacturing from fabric all the way through to production and all the way through to your end consumer. Um, that's the way I, I feel about it and that's not always possible with every product like changing the ball on, on a you know on a firearm is a very expensive ordeal if you want to start a firearms company you need a lot of money behind you and a bunch of lawyers you know um so um but yeah it's uh it's important super important i'm kind of interested in that when was there a certain moment in time where you were just like these shoes that we have now just they're not it they're not what they should be. Is there a moment where the light bulb just went off? I quit working for another company and took a 50% pay cut and, and didn't ride for anybody for three months. And I went into vans and, and, and made a deal with them and just took what I could get from them um, because they weren't in the best shape at that time. I didn't want to work with any other company in the whole industry. I didn't like anyone's product, which is weird, you know, for a kid. You know, you grow up and you're, you, you know, you grow up and you, you think all these brands are like the bee's knees and everything, but when you see the backside of it and you realize that they're, some of them aren't anything special, um, and I didn't like what anyone was pumping out at all, not only just for skating, for anything. I thought they were junk, a lot of it, a lot that was available at that time. So I was kind of in disarray. It wasn't, I wasn't confident at all that what I was doing was the right thing. I just did it. And, and, and kind of drew up the, the product that needed to be made and then fought for it for a year to get it manufactured. They manufactured it and still it was a, no, no, it's not going to work. Like you got to realize, like imagine if, um, and Vans at that time was probably still, oh, it was probably three, it's almost $3 billion in business, right, in sales right now. And it's grown a billion a year, pretty much, the last two years. It's massive growth, huge, huge growth. Huge growth. And, but then there was still probably a few hundred, 300, 400 million or something like that. And I went in there and wanted to make a product, that, which is their shoes. It's a shoe brand. Um, and used a logo that they hadn't used for many, many, many years. They used a construction that they couldn't sell and wasn't selling at that time. And I used all of their logos. We like taking the Nike swoosh and putting that back on on the Nike shoe, and no one's used it for years. <laughs> we had to fight with uh, the president at the time and people, and to actually make the manufacturer. So it wasn't confident. It wasn't an easy thing. And you know, when they did it, it didn't sell straight away neither. 
and because the marketplace just didn't know what came out. It came out from sideways and it took a year before people realized that, oh, that's actually better for skateboarding than what's out there right now. And, and you're getting a better quality product and a product that you'd never got from vans prior to that because they never had the, they didn't really update that construction until that point. So they didn't become comfortable until uh, one of those first models, 98, 99. And then the year after they start to sell super good. So then the whole, the whole company kind of like grew from there and they just opened up all of the skew counts for all of the vulcanized shoes, which is what they're well known for now. But that DNA was already there. I didn't do that. You know, I just um, was instrumental in, in kind of reinventing that wheel because it needed to be done. You know, and you fight those battles sometimes, you lose too, you know. Um, but, you know, I've had a, had a fair amount of experience working with product and marketing and everything. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I started this knife brand. I started a knife brand about two and a half, almost three years ago, um, because I, I, I thought that everything that was available on the market was boring, you know. I'm yeah, probably yeah, sorry yeah, to say that word, but. Boring. It was boring. I, th I thought the, all the branding, everything they were doing, I thought was just bland and flat. And I thought 90% of the product wasn't that great. Now, that doesn't mean I can't walk in the door and make a product in the first year making it. I'm making the best knife anyone's ever seen in their life. You know? Um, I'm not naive to the fact that that takes time to build um, those relationships with vendors and also an understanding of the manufacturing process that goes into making knives and tools. So... You know, um, it's ground, ground zero, um, but that's one of the reasons why I kind of wanted to start knife companies because it gives me more of an excuse to spend more time in the outdoors, you know, and uh, I've been guiding a little bit last couple of years for Jake. Jake's just thrown me in the deep end with sheep, sheep hunts and tule elk hunts, and, and so I've been helping Jake guide um, with almost zero experience doing that but I've spent as every working hour free that I have in the local mountains and the desert trying to educate myself um, and you know having a, a knife and tool brand that allows me to go and do that because it's part of that uh, business is, is a freaking great deal for me Right. That works out pretty well. Come up with a company. My goodness, it sounds great. Let's do this. You know, if, I could, if I could spend every every day out in, out in, out in the field and going out and doing that, I I I would, you know, and uh, so yeah. Anyway, is that enough fluff in my balls? <laughs> no, a little some? bit more. A little bit more it doesn't oh, hurt. Oh, oh, I got. Well, I got. This is something I'm kind of curious about. Right? Do you remember? Yeah. The first time you saw someone copycat that that first that first design, that van shoe. Do you remember the first person to do it? Yeah, yeah, down in um, China. I was on a tour in China, and they had the exact same shoe, and I think it had somebody else's name, some random word, the logo backwards or something like that, and then I think it said V Wans on it, V I W A N S on the. And ton and it's the exact same shoe they just cut they basically taken what they do with that is that there's a back door on all those factories <clears> right like kind of a piece of fabric gets stamped it's a little crooked or whatever or that piece of suede isn't that good it goes in a box well that box disappears out the back door yeah. you know and then somebody's mother makes a label and then it's in the local sport and goods store in somewhere in the middle of nowhere in china 
you know, it's my goal in life to take out the <laughs> copycat freaking market. No. You got you got the knives to do it, right? <laughs> yeah, we got enough to throw that way. There you I go. Mean, I don't know if we could cover enough ground. <laughs> just shot. What do you you got? Some of those knives there with you now? I, we, I do actually. We just we have one right here, but <clears throat> that's nice. Which is basically just a slim line, kind of line a lock with a very, very thick blade on it and kind yeah. of a three-inch blade, three-and-a-half-inch handle. And that's just a basic line of lock. And then low we spend... Low-profile pocket clip. Low-profile pocket clip. You barely feel it in your pocket and kind of G10 handle it textured for, for grip. But, um, yeah, we do, a few, we do a few, and we just spent the last year building, like, last eight, nine months building a machine shop which is where we're at right now. If we go in the door that's right there, there's a full machine shop with machines everywhere. And we only just um, started to finish full production knives in the last couple of days, basically. So we're building up inventory before we launch our in-house knives, which are 100% sourced in the US and manufactured in the US. 100% every piece of metal, every component has been sourced and cut, either in this shop or somewhere in this country. And that's not something we can do on every single product that we do because we're a tiny little company trying to figure out how to make the best knives. And you don't you don't that <laughs> unless you throw yourself in and go at it. So we've we've spent the last like nine months figuring out how to do that. You know how do we do that? Um, and so we're just finishing off. We just actually just finished the first ones yesterday. Um, I'll show you this brown one because it'll probably show up. It's actually this. No one's ever actually seen this. This is the first time anyone's actually seen this. I like. Um, this is a friction folder. It's titanium on this side, like solid titanium. And on this side, it's G10 textured. You can't even feel the dang knife, right? And it's a friction folder. So it stays open on friction, you know? Basically, you put your thumb there and it's not gonna close up on it. Or you put your finger in there and it can open if you push down. But it's basically a pocket knife and the razor blade steel is AEBL, so it's a similar steel to what gets used for razor blades, except it's a little thicker and probably sharper than most razor blades too. So what you have is pretty much the lightest little pocket knife, simplest lock, a simple locking mechanism. If you want to clean this out, that's how easy it is to clean out in the field. You just put a brush through it, you know, and clean it out. And that will cut as good as any scalpel. Arguably, <laughs> right? But arguably, it, it, but the, the, the steel is a comparable properties to a razor blade steel, but it's a pocket knife. It's going to be a little bit different. <clears throat> it's going to be a little bit thicker. So it's not going to replace a like, scalpel for skin and animals. That's not what this is. This is a pocket knife. That's um, a great looking knife. But we just finished making these right now. Um, and so... Like I said, they'll be coming out in the next month or two um, once we've built up enough inventory. Um, but it's fun. I love doing it. You know, and we go out in the field and we always use knives and we always have that stuff around. But we also we make other stuff too. We don't make, we're not a clothing company. We make hats and some t shirts for fun and stuff. Um, but, I like uh, the clothing though too. So don't just start not making clothing, all right? I like we make, look. make new clothing through vans, but we don't really. We don't really make clothing. We, we <laughs> support 
for our outdoor gear. Like that's what we use exclusively is Kuyu gear, you know? I love Kuyu's merino wool. I think it's the best that there is out there. So I, I use all, we use all of their stuff and for clothing. See, cut down on you. I know you, you, but you do have an idea, right? You said you had an idea. Well, hey, for everybody, everybody makes mistakes, but you know, it's fine. <laughs> I just oh, are you, your balls. <laughs> are you first night? Are you no, first You know, I actually, I'm, I, I like a lot of that's the car. Ace, right? car that's car That's ASAC camo? Yeah. Yeah, this one is. Yeah. We wear just about everything, you know, yeah. we can get our hands on. I actually, up around here, I wear a lot of Carhartts just because yeah. I, can't, I haven't been able to afford any nice hunting clothing. So it's really what I wear to work that keeps me warm. I'm wearing in the tree stand to keep me warm. But we do have a little, I have a little cryptic, a little first light. Phil's, Phil, Phil's gets, you know, he's a big deal out there in Colorado. He gets anything he wants. Yeah. I do have an idea for pants. Let's just go over all my ideas right now so we can get those out of the way. <laughs> Phil, why are you shaking your head no? Don't shake your head no to me. I got hey, Don't go through all of them. I think that's what I, I've heard most of his ideas, guys. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> here's, here's, what, here's what I got. Okay. You need a pair of pants <clears throat> that has a little bit of stretch to it, but also... You know how like Carhartt or Duluth and some of these mountain khakis make double, uh, like the double front legs? Yeah. All right. I want the uh, some brush-resistant stuff for like bird hunting on the front. I think Philson make those. No, they don't. They make, yeah, oh. there's a lot of places with brush, the brush-resistant hunting pants, but no one's that makes like a... A mountaineering, oh, a mountaineering oh. style pant with also the brush with briar resistant material. I thought you were saying layer it over the top. You're saying actually have the stretch in underneath space so you have the durability yes. on the upper parts of your legs and lower parts, but then you can yes. bend. Yes. Ah. Okay. Yeah, you could do that. It would look a little funky. Dude. <laughs> you look like a man. The funkier it looks, the more people wear it. Maybe. In Germany. When you're talking about blue camouflage, absolutely. Phil missed this earlier. Jeff turned me on to that in Germany, it is cool to wear the blue camouflage. On the street. On the street. The, the blue camo, just like a, like a multi-cam, just kind of just a, the general generic camo. Like the pink one that they do for ladies. Oh, yeah. They have to, the blue one. The blue, like the anyway. pink one, but the blue one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fantastic idea. I think you should put that into production. I would if anyone would just give me the money to do it. Jeff, you got any money lying around? I got That's idea. very very similar to see how I brushed over that one really quick. But there's um Chuck Norris in the seventies. Very similar concept but in the crotch. <clears throat> crotch gusset that was stretch and then the rest of the pant was was just no stretching, it was just solid denim. So that he could do his high kicks without splitting his pants, so his balls wouldn't fall out. We're a pair of chaps, man. What, what's the difference, right? <laughs> that too. That's Just right. Thong and some chaps. Oh, Jake and Phil are it. used to wearing chaps out on the dance floor. <laughs> <laughs> they can tell y'all also all about it. It's great till you turn around. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> too much. Unless, unless you're my my woman, and then it's okay. We won't go into that. All right. So we're nixing we're nixing the pant idea. 
Yeah. Um, does that mean we're nixing the vans with different kinds of camo on them idea too? I think that already got shut down. Yeah. You can't, you can't like talk to Kuyu, somebody, anybody, get some get some cool looking camo on their that, shoes. That's a, that, I mean, that's a weird, it is a weird crossover when you, when you have like big brands, whoever it is, kind of using camouflage on like streetwear or fashion or, the, and there's this, that's a huge part of the business probably for some of those, for a real tree and a mossy oak, people licensing their fabrics and using it on stuff that is not what it was designed essentially for, you know. Um, but you see that a lot, but you don't see a lot of people doing it with the younger camouflage brands, which in my opinion are a lot more effective in the field. Um, the ones that we already mentioned, your first lights and your Kuyu and your, your other brands that are out there kind of pushing the boundaries of like product for hunters and the outdoor space. Um, I think that's amazing because there was this huge, like with your real trees and your mossy oaks, I mean, not as diverse as you know you would always have wanted them to be. And my favorite camo before that was Predator, which is very similar to your ASAT that you're wearing, right? Like a similar kind of yeah. break up. You know, you break it up, you've done the job. You know, but for the most part, you know, because you're you're basically a star out there in the field. You know, you're a pale shaped star that moves very erratically and noisily. You know, so we need all the help that we can get, but it starts with stuff not being able to see you. So I'm okay with them using Realtree on, on your Nike Air Dunks, and we'll keep the Kuyus and your first lights and everything, and we'll keep that for what it's intended for. You, you say that now, you say that now, and in two years, someone's going to be making a whole lot of bank by going to one of these companies being like, you know what, we're going to put your camo on our shoes. I've done it. I've put Mossy Oak and Realtree on, on my shoes in the past. Where are they now? How do you get them? Let's sold really good too. People liked them. And I wouldn't because I did it because I could, you know, and it was an available fabric, much like your Nike Dunk shit you showed me, streetwear fashion and camouflage. But I did actually walk in the trees with them a little bit too. I'll walk in, I'll walk wherever you, I need to walk with these shoes. They can go anywhere. You know, um, yeah, anyway. Tree stand hunter. Speak it, spoken exactly. like a true tree stand Exactly. Hunter. I can wear these shoes and look good. Early season bow, I'll be up there. Well, funnily enough, your hat that you're wearing right there, I think you need to pull your dunk back out and put it, I need a side-by-side -side right now. <laughs> don't, you don't, you, don't go Jeff, there. I'm going to educate you. I match all my outfits. I got my sweet <laughs> pop the trunk, yellow wolf t-shirt on with a little <laughs> bit of neon orange to match my nice mountain ops flat brim that match my dunks. We'd be lying if we all said we didn't do that. <clears throat> yeah, trying to look good for this radio show. That's what's important. You got to look good when people are listening to you. See, a lot of radio show hosts, like if you actually stood up, you'd have some sweatpants with stains on it. <laughs> oh, is that a beer? No, this is a, a uh, polar seltzer. Oh, and I feel it's the ruby red grapefruit <laughs> flavor. Jake and I are dying for a beer. No, yeah. I, I drank for one show and we had to get rid of that show because it got a little too wild. Oh. <laughs> we didn't, we couldn't even edit it. We just had to get rid of it. it just went to the, went aside somewhere. It's a file somewhere stored. Yep, yep. Someday to be files. released. So where, where do you live in Colorado? Um, I'm right in Denver. Right in the city. Well, oh, I'm on, fine. I'm on the north end. I'm uh, as the. Uh, not in the city. I'm I'm probably 15 minutes from downtown Denver, just north. 
Um, but it, where I live, it's really kind of unique, still agricultural type area in between a bunch of suburbs. So yeah. it just hasn't quite gotten developed like all the yeah. build out. You still on the eastern side? I'm just on the east side of 25. Okay. You familiar yeah. with Denver pretty good? Pretty good, but I like. I don't. I used to tour a lot, like sure. skateboarding. You know what I mean? Because I'm 39, so I've been I've been skating for a long time. I've been a lot tours in the U.S. since I was 18, so I don't tour like I used to. But when I did a lot of it, man, we covered every road. You know, a lot, sure. a lot of places. I know I travel a lot anyway with all the stuff that I'm into, whether it's outdoor related or work related. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm fairly familiar. I know it okay. You know, I know the state of Colorado pretty good. Sure. But not every area. Denver's a pretty. It's growing fast in the last bunch of years. I couldn't tell you, you know, some of the some of the easier spots to get to now because it's changing. It's changed so much. But I do go out every single um, every single January for an event in the mountains in, in a, one of the ski resorts at Keystone. Sure. Out in there, and I fly into Denver every time there. And up until well, this last year, I didn't get to go. The year before, I did. Um, I'd lion hunted in Colorado every year since two thousand and three. Yeah. Um, but kind of on the western side, sure. um, southwest, but mostly all on the western side. Um, but I wasn't, I wouldn't fly into Denver, I'd just dry, drive, you know, from California yeah. all through, you know, through all your Vegas, see the city, St. George, that whole run, you know, you've got like the back of your hand, dial it, okay, here's my, where I'm stopping this time. Yeah. Um, so I know that, that side of Colorado a lot better than I know kind of the, the, the eastern side, east of Denver and north of Denver, and even south of Denver I don't know that well, but everything on the western end I know pretty good. Deal? Pretty, yeah. I've got a question for you, and this may have been touched on before. Where, are, you, are you originally from the U.S., Jeff? Are you from, I was born in England. So here's my question, man. This is kind of a uh, – you, you having your knife company and yeah. see, seeing the value of – being, you know, the people that live in the U.S. see the value of U.S.-made products, and you know, you, you're you're mentioning that your your stuff is the majority of your knives are U.S.-based products. Yeah. Tell me the reasoning behind having a focus on that as a, uh, you know, someone that that was born in England. Yeah, I I, I kind of grew up wanting to be a skateboarder. Sure. I, I like idolizing everything to do with it and when I got the opportunity to do that and I was got sponsored and got free gear and you're just going at it. Um, the, one of the companies I rode for that I'm partnering now, um, we got investors from the US over here, moved the company over here, this is to answer your, your, uh, your question. Um, and, uh, and so when I moved here, um, it took me a year or two to kind of acclimatize. Uh -huh. You know, get used to everything, the weather, the way everything works here. I, I had a crazy accent. I'm from northwest England, so on the northwest coast, so pretty much Scottish. Sure. With just dribbled. Like, you wouldn't have understood me because I speak <laughs> a lot of slang really fast. Hard to kind of slow that down, all that. But as soon as I moved here and I got comfortable after a year, I you, this is where I wanted to live the rest of my life. I, and as soon as I started to find people or know people that actually went into the outdoors and and explored the outdoor opportunities <laughs> enough to have here in the US, once I started to go into that and see that we have a lot of public land, we have, you know, we have access to vast tracts of land that in Europe they just don't have, it's done. It's already been taken away. The government's already got, owns it. You know, we don't have access to that. It's a privileged thing. And Like I grew up with a game warden, right? And 
even him, like just the restrictions on how and when and where he would carry and use his firearm was just, it was almost like you were doing something wrong. Sure. And you, and you were about as legal as it gets and about as above board. Now that, to me, is just lopsided, makes no sense to me. Uh, and the U.S., the foundation of the U.S., is the opposite of that. Hope, right? Like sure. you, hope, you hope it stands for certain civil liberties. Uh, and I love this country. I'm an American citizen, um, you know, and I have kids that were born here. And I love England, too. Absolutely love it. You sure. know, love the culture, love the people. Um, but with living here, um, long-winded answer to your question about the product, why would I want to make product in the U.S., right? Is uh, number one is the is the quality control on the product. I've tried to make stuff in other places. It's difficult. I'm learning that. I'm go. I'm learning this as we go right now. Sure. You know. Um, so it's a, it's some of it's testing and seeing what we can get away with, what we can't. Because you've always got to be competitive. You know, with your product, and that might be a pricing thing. So if we look and go. Okay, we want to make a fixed blade, and we want to make it for three hundred bucks. Well, maybe our customer, 90% of them think that that's too expensive. So how are we going to get the cost down? Either we don't have a lot of sales on that product or we take it overseas and make it for a fraction of the price and sell it. Now, I don't want to do that, right? But we will make some products overseas because the quality of that product dictates that we can make it better over there than we can make it here or make it in somewhere. Now, ideally, you would make everything here in the U.S., but we can't be a knife and tool company and manufacture hats and specialty outdoor equipment and have sewing machines and do everything in-house. Sure. The logistics of that are absolutely mind-boggling and a nightmare. So we're focused on making the best possible product we can um, through trial and error in here. And meanwhile, we make some other stuff. And we make some other stuff that we don't make here domestically too. And we make some stuff that we make a little bit overseas and a little bit here, a combination of everything. Um, but ideally, I'd like not to be able to have to manufacture overseas, but we are manufacturing some stuff overseas, and we'll probably continue to do so. Um, but the more, the stronger we get in here, the more we learn about how to manufacture that stuff, um, there, is a, there is potential to do absolutely everything here. The sure. potential is there for that, for that product. It's just expensive. And labor. And think about the labor, making knives and tools. <clears throat> Do you want to pull someone off the street and pay them minimum wage to make a product that could chop their fingers off or is, if they make one mistake, it's going to cost you a lot of money? No, we want skilled workers and we want to train them in the U.S. and we want to train them to make a product that they're not going to be able to make somewhere else because we have special sets of them that's making a lot of noise and machinery. So to answer your question, we're trying to do everything here, everything we can our first in-house product. We didn't need to buy all the, all the raw materials in the US. We could have dropped the price even further. But the quality of that product, the very first product we've had our hands on 150% is going to be the best that we, product that we can put out right now. You know? And then we'll build from that. Um, you know, I think, I think the out, like, like, we all hunt, right? We all spend a lot of time in the, out, in the outdoors and we use knives and, and equipment like that regularly. Man, there's a lot of junk out there. There's a lot of junk out there. And mm -hmm. some of the people will tell you it's great. And, and like we've used some of the stuff and I've used some of the stuff and I've got it out of the box and opened it up out of the box and it's fell to pieces. And it's $200, you know? So um, I think 
baby steps and like learn in the process of the manufacturing process of knives and tools, I think we have a lot to offer, you know, if we do it right. Um, and, you know, a lot of people will say they want to support manufacturing in the U.S., but then all your, a lot of customers, you know, we get, we get responses a lot, and most of them are very positive. And I'm not just, most of our responses are very, very positive. We love what you're doing. We think the direction of your brand is fantastic. Your branding's great. Your product's great. Um, and then we get the one guy that says that everything's too expensive or that it's just a joke or it's, and yes, as, as much as people want to like get behind made in the USA and manufacturing in the US, the consumer still wants something for free and they want a good deal and they want all that. And so you find against that and you're balancing that out as your business. You know, if we do a research, we re do research on the people that bought our products, and we find out they were all twenty-year-old boys, and they were <laughs> into camping. Then our customers are twenty-year-old camper, and we have to develop product to sell to him. And if we don't want to develop product to sell to him, then we need to start another business, sure. right? Or we need to get into something else. So we're going to try to manufacture as much as we can domestically, as much as we can. Right. And then we'll offer something overseas that might be a little bit lower in price for that person that just doesn't have that money. Yeah. Right? Like our hats like that, we make that. This is made in the USA and it's made, the fabric is made in the oldest wax canvas manufacturer in the United States. And that sounds like one of those craftsman stories, right? Um, but bottom line is for this particular kind of fabric, this is as good as it gets. Right? And then we, we ship it over and we manufacture it locally. And it's $55 for a hat, which most people used to pay $28 for a hat, $35 for a hat, but that's going to be made in overseas. Now, we, we make the same margins pretty much as we would on an overseas hat, a little bit less because we're shipping everything. We're handling all of it. We're delivering it. Someone's making it. They're delivering it back. Those are the problems with U.S. manufacturing, the little things. The mailing, the shipping, the movement of that raw goods and paying people to do that and the cost of that. Now in Asia, that comes as part of your deal with a lot of your vendors that you'll work with. They'll do a lot of that for you. They'll find you the fabrics you want. They'll do all that for you. But are they the skilled worker that you would have employed in your building in the U.S.? I think we can, we can, we can build better um, businesses and brands in there, but the customer is also going to have to really get behind that, you know, really, and they, they do, I mean, Filson does a, does a great job, they do a lot of, they make, manufacture a lot of stuff domestically, and then they do a combination of some of the fabrics made overseas, but they'll manufacture it domestically, or the other way, the other way around, um, but they don't lie to the customer, do you know, like, you know if, if a Filson's product's made in the USA, yeah, usually a little bit more expensive, and, and if you want to support that, you buy that one, now, if you don't care, you know, you'll just buy based on price. So it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one, you know. It's definitely a balance. But the, but the goal is to make a product that does, performs and does what you tell your customer it's going to do. Now, that doesn't mean you design a hat and say you can do everything because a hat can't do everything. But you can make a hat and say this fabric is the toughest fabric that we've been able to find. It will not tear. If it does tear at any point in your life, we will replace it. Um, we're not lying, you know? And it's not an aftermarket product that's open source that we couldn't continue to get forever. 
We knew, and then we can control our breath. So, I don't know. It's a difficult one. Do you want to see like our little machines and stuff? Yes, yeah. I do. You want to check it out? Our machinist actually left about an hour ago, um, and it's a it's a smallish shop. But I'll see if we can <laughs> run through stuff. Heat treatment, tempering, right there, little oven, and all all the mixtures of grinders and and everything else, all the bell, bells and whistles and everything. So now you can kind of see. It's hard for me to look, but. You know, and then we we do all of our, we kind of do all of our like hatchet, some of the work in house. You know, the sheaths are made domestically, and we stain them all in house, so we can finish. We can have a fin, put our finish and use the stains, the quality wood stains that we want to use, which is actually guitar stains. So it's for like antique guitars. It's beautiful, beautiful stains. So it goes real dark, which most kind of wood stains are usually a little more opaque. Mm -hmm. um, so we do that because we want that product to be jet, a jet black hatchet because I think there's a guy out there that will always buy a freaking black hatchet. <laughs> um, so that's what we're doing. Then we're, we're starting to build you know, our folders so you can see at different stages of what we're doing. And you know, that's pretty much it. You know, Really, not a huge spot. There's some gear. I don't even know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> packs. Yeah. And we're getting, um, we get hooked up by Pelican too, which is a pretty sweet deal, getting free like rifle and gun, pistol cases and all that. It's always good getting that stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. They weigh a ton. <laughs> hey, you got to protect what's in there. What's that? Yeah. You got to get it first. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's pretty much it. This is you know a smallish shop, a few thousand square feet. And we have another office that's kind of um, in downtown Long Beach, which is where I kind of work out of a lot, just because it's close to home. And this is close to home too. I'm about I don't know five or six miles from my house. Um, and then um, you know, so it's all it's all close by. And this area is actually historically like really well known for industrial manufacturing, Signal Hill, because we're so close to the San Pedro Port, which is the busiest port on the West Coast. Um, but yeah, I don't know what background do you want. What do you want? Try and get that weird, weird light. <laughs> that looks good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, so, that's cool, man. I could I, I was just curious from perspective because my dad's. My dad came from Mexico, and and he's come to this country, and yeah. now owner of multiple businesses, and and we 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 fight the battle as well with the labor and the you know it, it's yeah. a different we're more a service based business, but it's still it's it's interesting to get the perspective from. I'm not calling you an outsider. You've probably lived more in the U.S. than than in England. You know, yeah. as my dad I'm, I'm has. I'm pretty familiar with the like the European kind of um, retail space. You know what I mean? Or the customer from manufacturing skateboards and whatever it is for the last twenty years and selling that stuff to kids essentially. Yeah. You know, you do see things, patterns that are global, sure. you know? and those patterns are more and more global as time goes by. You know, is that good? How's that light? How does my hair look? So, speaking of skateboards, you know, how right. hard would it be for Phil and I to get a couple with our logos on them for like the background space here? 
I'm going to go ahead and step in right here, and I'm just going to say that. Um, we only need one of them, Phil. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you know, I, it, hey, man, I, I don't judge anybody for the things that they do. I, I respect it, and I admire a lot of it. I'm not skilled enough or coordinated enough, I think, to, to be on a, on a skateboard. Uh, I think that I probably end up hurting something real bad. And uh, it's the same reason I don't ski. I just, you know, uh, something about a Hispanic guy going down a, a <laughs> sheet of ice on yeah. two little sticks, not a good thing, man. I, well, I I'm the same with skiing. You know, or even snowboarding. I don't, I don't do those things. You know, I, I, they look awesome. It looks fun to go backcountry skiing or snowboarding where no one's ever been, kind of thing, or on fresh powder, just for what you'd see and the enjoyment out of that. But I hear you. Well, you I, know, Phil, I was thinking hunting, of though. a wall hanging, though, more of a novelty type thing to have right behind my head. Yeah, but then you'd get the buddies over. You're having a couple pops, and then they say, "Hey, can you use that? Let's see." No. You know, and then you're gonna act like you can use it. Break just your ass, and then it's it's all over, man. It's it's all. <laughs> I just want the deck. Don't put anything else. Uh, on. Yeah. I just want it. Don't make that happen. You're asking how much does that cost to make one of them? Yeah. Just is it a lot to get one? To get one. Deck? Well, you probably maybe just want to screen print it. So depending on how many colors, and then you just have to get the films made and find yeah. some screen print skateboards and whatever you wanted. You could probably do it for I don't know. That's <laughs> up a couple hundred bucks, 150 bucks. I don't know, something mm -hmm. like that. Set up on that probably fifty to hundred bucks on the film, and then if you're only going to make one of them, <laughs> just, one. just I just need one. I just need That's one you, for my wall. Well, it depends on what colors you want, then, man. But it's definitely doable. But you could do the same thing with your your, your beautiful mounted deer and behind you right there. If you want to just do the same thing for them, you could do it for a couple of hundred bucks. I think they look much more beautiful than than a skateboard with uh, I don't know what kind of whether it would just be your name. On it, will or no, our logo? It'd be our logo, our podcast logo. Ah, okay. Yeah, hence why it would be behind me. Yeah, I don't think you should do that. No, <laughs> I don't have any 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 mounts as beautiful as Phil's though. You start working on it. I am working on it. I'm waiting for one right now. The deer I took this year, he's currently so, off. So, so, so let's talk some some hunting. Um, so it's Southern California and Colorado. They're in both interesting area. You think? The what's that? Colorado. A lot of a lot of transplants from California. Yes. Moved Colorado. A lot of business owners moved to Colorado. Sure. Now moving out of Colorado, right? The last couple of years because of some of the restrictions, right? Which affects hunters huge in Colorado. Access to some of the high country during the winter and close off because of the snowmobiling and all that kind of crap, and you can't even hunt effectively, efficiently in some areas because of it. Like those kinds of products in Southern California, um, oh, yeah, it's insane. They, you know, we rode into Holcomb Valley. I did a loop in the backcountry kind of with my son over the weekend, took him up in the mountain. They closed that dang road off. It's 85 degrees, and the road was closed because it snowed, what, a month ago? Yeah, and it's really? Cold, you know? And, um, for no reason, with no signage, no nothing at the trail, like at the start of the first trailhead, like um, those kind of things in, in California and in Colorado are like going to be the things that are going to kill hunting for us. The yeah. more the more of that that happens, and Jake, you know, being a hunting guide, I mean, so ingrained in that whole space, would know more than than, than I ever would, you know, about that, you know, and um, I think that like that that talking about those kind of things, I think. It's just, Super important. You know, we're in Southern California. I live in LA. We're right in 
Jake lives out in the desert, you know, a couple of hours away. Um, but if we want to go out, if I want to go out, just to go to even before I even pull the firearm out in in anywhere where it's legal, I got to drive two hours, you know, before I start, you know, and I do that as much as I possibly can, you know, and, and during this past season, I don't know how many days we did thirty odd days guiding for Jake, um, but just very frustrating. Like for somebody who. And I've only just in the last couple of years, because I've had um, responsibilities and the heavy workload and all that, I only had a certain amount of time each year I could allocate to go out and do stuff for me. Sure. Very difficult. But in the last couple of years, I just, I've stopped that. I'm like, no, I'm going to take every single opportunity I possibly can. Number one, to stay in shape. But number two is because it's the only thing that I want to do. It drives me like crazy. So <laughs> just even that, like with the limited amount of experience that I have, you know, going after animals like full time or as much as you possibly can. There's so many ba just barriers to making it yeah. difficult to just go and do it, you know? And I think that is going to be the biggest problem we're going to have to address if we want like a load of people to sign up and do it more, you know? You know, because that, that's the goal. You want, you want people to appreciate, respect, and understand the role that it plays in wildlife management and everything. Um, you know, so that's you know, that's the side of it that I'd like to be involved with if I can. I'll try to help, even if it's just me being positive on that or raising that concern. Um, you know, but, um, yeah. Yeah. No, it, I mean, you you make an interesting point too because you know the and I heard it on another podcast actually it was today or yesterday I was listening to. They were talking about similar topic and. You know, you've got a small percentage of hunters, you've got a small percentage of anti-hunters, and you've got a, the vast majority of people in the middle that, that are just, they don't, do, they don't care about either as much. Um, and if we can just educate that group of people, yeah. and some of them may begin to start hunting, you know, yeah. but I think the, the vast majority of people, they don't want to hunt. They, they still want to go to the grocery store and, and, you know, pick up their meat and whatever they want to do. But as long as they understand and respect what we want to do, and understand that that is part of our right and, and we are taking care of our lands and, and taking care of animals in the process, as long as we can help to educate that, that group, I think that's, that's the important thing. Because the, the people that are on the extreme end that want to shut down hunting and shut down, regu you know, regulate everything to, to the nth degree, those people are, you're not going to reason with those people, in my opinion. It's just a matter of kind of people in the middle. What's that? Diane Feinstein. Well, yeah. um, difficult. Well, I tell you what, like running an outfit in Southern California, I see it firsthand. Um, the laws and everything that I have to abide by, and the you know, I have to come to offices down here in LA to give them my permits to guide hunters. And, and it like changes the people's careers. They're like, wait, you're doing what? Where? Yeah. Right now? And they do everything they can to prevent that from happening. But every time I come down, like we're in Long Beach right now, every time I come down here, I realize how disconnected us as hunters are from bulk populations. Right. So, um, you know, yeah, you drive across the United States and you stop in different towns all the way across the United States, you know, 2,000 people in this one, 5,000, 10,000 smaller towns where you come to a place like this, there's 15 million people and 
you have a hunting get together and there's 10 guys that show up, you know, so your bulk populations are so far uneducated in hunting. And then, you know, your hunters of today, they don't want to come into places like this and educate these kinds of people and the bulk populations in hunting, you know, and so that's, and, and I, that gap is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. There's also no place for people to go. Like if you're a kid, and I'm, that's a lot of people. Southern California is a huge gun community. Like it might have a big hunting community, but it's yeah. a very, very large, Black active, active, active gun community, right? Most of those people, if they were, if it, if it was presented to them, and uh, the path was easier for them to pick up a firearm gun and. and shoot an animal and harvest it naturally and take the meat and go do it without going through all of that, educating themselves on the ins and outs of how to do that in Southern California and where to go and where to start. You look at the map, where do you go? Right? You want to hunt mule deer in Southern California, you look at a map and you go, okay, where do I go? Where do I go to find that out? Who's going to tell me that? It's not there. So I think like from your point, there's a lot of people that are sitting there waiting to be educated the right way. You want them to look on as hunting favorably, right? Like favorably and as a valid part of society and a valid part of, of the infrastructure um, and the logistics behind managing our wild herds of animals, right? Because if that revenue isn't coming in through hunting, it's not coming in through some other way. Right. So that guy that that shoots firearms as a 1911 or whatever, he shoots all the time. He'd love to go hunt, but no one's he's never even met anyone that hunts. I've met a lot of those, those people, and they want to go hunt. And they say, take, take, take me hunt, take me hunt, let's go hunt. It's not easy to do. Oh. It's not. You know, so, you know, that's one of the challenges when you have millions upon millions of people in a huge city in LA, and a lot of them would hunt. I think, How? I think, like, the other thing is, is, is many hunters will... They just want to buy their tag. They just want to do their thing. They don't want to get involved in any of the politics. They don't want to get involved yeah. in any. They just want to. They just want to be left alone to do what they they can do. But yeah. what those people aren't realizing is, the more people that start to do that, the less people that are there that are willing to spend the time and go into the bigger cities and and put in the work to help protect what we have. Like like it, it's hunting is going to start to go away because there's less and less people teaching their kids about this type of you know lifestyle and and educating them there the right way and also even putting in extra free time of which yeah you could be out scouting or you could be out fishing or you could be out whatever you know hiking but a lot of times you need to sacrifice a little bit of that so that way you can go to your local you know government entities meetings and, and show the support and and get involved and that's where that disconnect start is starting to show up in many cases because there's it's been for years that so many people are I don't care I just I I'm following my I'm following the regs as they, the the statement makes me do I'm paying my money to get a tag and let, let me just go do my thing yeah. but then it stops right there so again I I think this generation with the the internet and social media and and understanding that stuff is going to start going away. I hope that people start getting motivated to get out of their comfort zone a little bit and teach and take someone new to go hunting and, and help out, right? Maybe it's your own kids. You know, maybe you take one of your kids' buddies or something. Maybe that's enough. Yeah, or you just throw somebody in the truck and you take them out just so they see something from a different perspective or they learn a little bit of patience or whatever it is, but they have an experience that they've not had before and that's how it starts. 
pay. Yeah. Um, but it's a difficult. It's a difficult one when you have like huge stigma attached to even just the word hunting. You know, hunter, hunting <laughs> implies something. Implies that you're going out to kill something. Yeah. Which is which is okay because that's essentially what you're doing. But <clears throat> with like just the general public and the state of affairs right now, and how to market that like thing that we love doing, right? How to market that and have it actually survive, right? Because we can see it's this big problems, but some of the younger brands I think are bringing that like younger, fresher perspective. Um, you know, the ones that we're all supporting, you know, like whether it's Kuyu's that you like or whether it's whatever it is, you know what I'm saying? Um, I think um, I think some of those younger brands do understand that problem, like actually understand that problem and given the opportunities, they would do the right things to help that because they recognize that it does go away or if that business drops, everything they're building towards is a dying, you know, entity. Um, but that's a difficult one when you have like a, a bunch of different um, hunting organizations, you have you know, all your different shooting organizations and then you have all your conservation organizations that are either 501c corps or privately owned and then the worst one that you have is all the anti-hunting um, 501c corps or private entities that have muddied the water, they're lying. You know, essentially most of the hunting owners, they're not lying, you know, they're generally trying to give you statistics and facts that they think might help, right? Um, but then you have, you know, some of those other organizations, um, whether it's the Humane Society or whoever it is, telling the majority of the people that you're saying don't hunt but maybe wouldn't, would, might be okay with it. They're being fed that information, you know, multi-million, millions of dollars of marketing each year going into spreading essentially a lie about wildlife management and about the health of the animals and the species that live on our earth, not just North America. Sure. You have the whole elephant thing and you have the whole African lion thing and you have Leonardo DiCaprio going on there posting pictures of like a Yellowstone grizzly saying that that animal is vulnerable, you know, like the word, you know, the words, it's, it's that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I think a tight message on that is like something that we all, we all, it's all, all of us have to make sure that we are aware of that and we don't go down the same route of, uh, you know, shooting an animal and, and just laughing, you know what I mean? And like that moment, that particular moment for most people is pretty, pretty amazing. It's pretty beautiful, right? It's pretty special and it can be whatever that emotion comes out, comes out. But it's not something that as an industry we want to throw at people in the face. Right. Because it's always going to get taken as blood, death, you did it right there and you're laughing. Yeah. You know? You know? And that's yeah. not to say that if you're there with your buddies that you can act the way ever you want. You know, as long as you're legal, you know, and there's a certain amount of ethics, meaning you didn't intentionally make the animal harm, right? You intentionally shot its leg off and let it run away for a laugh, and then you're joking. That's obviously not okay to anybody, you know? But the, you give them that ammo, you know? Every time we do that, we give them ammunition. Um, and uh, we need to figure out a way to give them different ammunition that is undisputable. Undisputable. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and that's something that I enjoy watching a lot of the short films that get featured in some of these film tours and stuff because some of them, they really focus on the process and the journey and, and the, the scenery and the experience and less about the kill in, in many of the ones that I've enjoyed watching. And that, it, to me, is 
there's things that should be highlighted that, that highlight think, hunting in a positive view. Honestly, a lot of the hunting television, I, I watch less and less of it, it seems like, because there is still some of that redneck kind of loose cannon. Yeah. It, well, you I, don't learn anything, right? Like, I, if I watch a hunting show, I want the guy that's on there, whether he's the guide or whether he's the hunter or whether he's the show presenter, whatever he does, tell me something I didn't know or tell me something maybe I do know or just freaking say something that's helpful. But most of them, it's kind of runs through that formula. Yeah. Right? And when you've watched it once, you're not going to watch it again, you know? Not sure. really. It doesn't um, have that- to be. It doesn't have to be the cookie cutter. Screenshots of Bocephus the buck in the beginning. Will we find him? Let's cut back and forth. Dramatic angles. A little <laughs> bit of music. Oh, look. We found Bocephus the buck and shot him at the end. Here we are holding his antlers up. The music is very emotional and fades to credits. Yeah, right? It doesn't have to be that. It can be a unique story-driven um, show or even film. We had buddies from... Out back outdoors, do a film uh, the Ibex, and they did it last year, and I think they have a sequel coming out to it. And it was a beautiful film, well done, story driven film about hunting. You know, and it's things like that breaking the mold, or you know, whether it's Donnie Vincent works or some of the Brandon Shockey uh, stuff. Yeah. It's that's the kind of stuff that it's going to attract people who might be on the fringe, might be into the outdoors, into camping, and all this stuff who maybe want a cleaner source of meat or want to take uh, that part of the process into their own hands. That might get them in there. That might get them into the door. That might get them to pique curiosity and reach out to someone they know who does hunt. Yeah, I think processing your meat and doing that side of it is a huge benefit, right? And And a huge selling point of going hunting, right, for the majority of people is... You know, most people, you said to them, are you comfortable with somebody doing it like this, killing the animal, processing it, taking the meat home, eating it? Most people are going to say, yeah. You know, most people are. So if that's the side of it that gets them into it, you know, that's, 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 that's huge. But then you still have the problem of access and it's information. You know, um, I'm a 15-year-old guy. I've got a gun, you know, whatever. I've been shooting with my dad for the last three years. I'd love to go hunting. Uh, my dad's not a hunter. I'm not a hunter. Where do I start? I go on the internet, hunting, <laughs> and like you go from there. I think that I think we need to we need to do something about that. You know, you know and we're getting weird light. You know, yeah. we're getting crazy. I had an interesting conversation the other day. Heads, yeah, just our heads. But uh, it was actually um, with a lady who works here with Jeff, and she was talking to me about wanting to get in. You know, just being from the city, living in the city, having no connection with anything outside ever for her whole entire life. And her saying that she wants to be involved. And so I asked her, I said, now, do you actually want to be involved and be hands-on in those activities? Or could you fill that void by being involved in some other way but still living in the city? And she sat there and and thought for a long time. And and she said, there's nobody, there's really no outdoor um, kind of like groups or, I mean, I guess North Face would be the closest thing to where, yeah. you know, it's an outdoor company that people actually like wear and use it, yeah. you know, in the city. But um, it's kind of the same thing. Like there's, what's the stigma again, product attached to the word hunting. Yeah. You know, so, it, so the, if you're, if someone was sneaky about it, they'd bring it all in the back door, right? Build this massive, all in the back door and then open that information to people. 
Um, and it's possible. It's possible. Hey. I think some younger brands out there, I'm, I really do think, are going to be very, very instrumental in like guiding where this next phase is going to go. And I don't think it's going to be some of the bigger established brands in the industry. I just I don't see it. Uh, from a business standpoint, I don't see it, you know? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it's outdated, uh, outdated product, outdated business model, and, and um, outdated just aesthetics and quality too. And most of it is made overseas. And that's what we're currently, the majority, what we're buying. But I think moving forward, I think there, there's going to be more respect for like your serious mountain hunter. I think, um, you know, I think Jason Akuyu, Again, not to freaking just push the brand. I think the fact that he's trying to get that message out to a lot of people is important. Whether you're like him or it or that or not, somebody's trying to do that, and it's positive. You know, it's not a the formula that you said in the videos. They're trying to do more creative stuff, and you know, we do the same thing. I mean, we've made three short little movies, eight minutes long, eight to twelve minutes, and. The first one was with Jake, and it was uh, right when he started his outfit, so it was his first client, and as, as his own outfit, and um, and that's an interesting story because I thought if somebody never hunted before, which that hunter never had, shit, make a video on that. That's right. important. That's important. It doesn't happen that much that a guy draws a Thule elk tag and he's never hunted before, you know, and it's the first client for a new outfit and business in Southern California with a, a incredibly accomplished hunting guide. That's his very first client for his new business. It's interesting, and hopefully people will look at that and go, "Oh, that could, I could do that," or you know, um, you know. And then we did one on sheep. Um, so you, you try and do those things, but they're only going to go so far without like. I mean, it's all information, right? So the more we can condense the information and put put it to the potential next generation hunter, the more likely are to grab onto it. But you have to know that guy. You have to know, and it starts with. Strange enough, with like younger kids and people, because that's when you're exposed to a lot of that stuff, and when you grab onto it, and when a lot of your foundations for for what you you are as a person are set, right? Like, I mean, it go it goes goes past that guy can be four years old, never have hunted, and go and do that. But but generally, um, if you can get that information to somebody when they're younger and it's good information, you'll be with them for the rest of their lives. Um, and so you know, I think. Um, I think that's the issue is that everyone wants to make these rad little videos and great videos that can have a different take and aren't all about um, going and looking for an animal and, and you know, freaking shooting it and then high five and, and, and taking a trophy shot and posting just the trophy shot on the internet even though you spent freaking 18 days trying to find, get that one animal, right? 18 days to show a bit, you know, like to me the 18 days is pretty sick. That's more important. Yeah. You know? You know, I'm glad you mentioned Kuyu, and I'm glad you mentioned really good films because that gives me a perfect segue into people out there. If you have not gone over to the Kuyu Film Fest page and voted for our buddy's film Searching, which is in the pro-long category, that's our good buddy A.J. DeRosa, who's been on the show a bunch of times. Uh, Vote for his film. He's currently in the lead. Let's get him over a thousand votes. Let's throw this thing up for him. Make sure it happens. And then our other really good friend, Justin Wampler, and uh, Chris Honstein, who I believe are in the amateur long. And jeez, I can't remember the name off the top of my head. Can you have their film? No, I don't film? remember. 
I don't remember now. Take I'll get that for everybody. And when I post this show up, I'll make sure the name's up there posted with it. I think I want to say it's Expanding the Tradition. I think that's the name of the film. Does that sound good? Sounds like sounds like it's it. I think I got it. But make sure you guys head over them and make sure, you know, just support people who are doing this exact type of thing we're uh, talking about right now. <coughs> Anyways, back to back to what you were saying too is one of the best things I think for expanding hunting and growing hunting is pro shops like whether it's Phil's in Denver or uh, Gotham Archery in Brooklyn, which they're, it's, it's in the in Brooklyn, right, this archery shop, and it's exploding. I went down there to check it out because I have some mutual friends with the owners, and there was guys in there. There's a Puerto Rican guy. He's an actor, and he comes up. His name's uh, Luis Antonio Ramos, and he's on, I think it's Greed with 50 Cent. And he came up and he starts talking to me and he's like, I just got into archery. I'm addicted and I just took my first hunter safety course and I'm going to become a hunter. I was, and it was, it was fascinating to talk to this guy who's lived in the city nearly all his life and decided he wants to now be a bow hunter. You know, and I asked the guys who run the shop, I'm like, how many of these have you had? And they were like, oh, we've had two so far. And I'm like, how, how? You know how they do, and they're like they sold out in the in five minutes. Our hunter safety courses were booked in five minutes. Yeah. So I think it's possible. I think they there there needs to be these grassroots shops like Phil's where people can go and get great information from very knowledgeable people, or you know Gotham Archery or whatever local shop might be in your area that could help you get going because a lot of these guys they want to share their passion. With you, you know. Do you I've, get that lot, Phil, what's you that? Your store? What's that? You have a store? Yes, we got. I've got an archery shop, archery pro yeah. shop. Do you get a Do you get a lot of like younger kids or younger people, or even a lot of first time kind of shooters coming in? Oh yeah, and that's yeah. that's where I mean, you know, Will and I started this podcast about a year ago, and then I've got another blog site that I was just doing some random stuff, just more for the sake because I I got so many questions from online and. I, I'm not in the shop all the time, obviously. So people were just, you know, emailing me questions or social media, and then I started doing some videos, and I ended up turning it just more into a short version podcast that, that I do separate from this, where it's just short tips because there's so many beginners and so many people that have maybe done it for a little while, but they they've they just don't know where to take the next steps to start to evolve the yeah. to, to grow themselves in the process of becoming a better hunter, yeah. and um, and that's where we see it a lot, and and the thing that I really enjoy is we have a, a real really good youth program. You know, our youth program is is excellent, and the coaches I have are excellent, and so they bring in a lot of families that maybe not won't be into hunting because the the, the youth program is more structured towards kind of like Olympic style shooting and and, and that t type of archery. But you bring these families in, and it opens the door to archery in general to them. And yeah. then it may be a family that's, yeah, you know, they're, they're, they go to the Whole Foods and they, they pay twice as much as anybody else for groceries and, and that's what they want to do and that's okay. But then they start looking at some mounts on the wall. They start seeing bow hunters that are, that are in the shop practicing with their setups. And they, they get curious and they start asking questions. Those are the people that they're open-minded many often. Oftentimes they're, they're curious and, and they're kids that start chirping, I want to do this, I want to do this. Those are the ones that I really feel motivated to help because 
Yeah. Not that I don't feel motivated to try to help as many people as we can, but it's to, to see the kids have a, an interest and a passion to try to do that and um, knowing that if you start them out and teach them right the right way early on, then they'll be able to carry that through forever. Yeah. And, 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 but we do see it, and it's, it's good to see. There's other programs that we work with that, with the state wildlife. Uh, that here in Colorado, it's Parks and Wildlife now. They do a becoming a bow hunter program, and they have a structured course where they do lecture and, and teaching and demonstrations, and they get people. I think they're in their second year, and they just had their first group of hunters actually go out and hunt in the field last year that went, they went through that course. So it's really cool to see some of those types of programs growing and to be a part of it where we, in, we open the doors of the shop and we let them use our classroom and whatever they need to do yeah. because it's, it's just – it's hard because we don't have the reach. We don't have the, the finances to, to, to reach out to the masses. But just to start trying to pick it. Pick and, it can affect your, your area. That's you right. Know? You know, we all, that, that comes back to your duty, right? Like we all, we want to see this kind of go down the right path. And we want to see our game herds, more importantly, be healthier than they've ever been. Or yeah. as healthy as they can be with the resources that we have. We're getting crappy rain. There's only so much we can do about that, right? But um, that doesn't mean we couldn't subsidize that. Being smart in some areas, right? Um, you know, I think I think because everyone you talk to, ninety-nine percent of the people love being in the outdoors, right? They love that, and they love the romantic side of going and looking at a big animal if they have the opportunity. Um, but if they're a little more educated on the role that that animal plays in its ecosystem and they're they a little also a little more open-minded, as you say, um, you get a lot more stuff done. You know? let's, let's, let's touch on that a little bit, right? You're both hunters. What, and I guess figure out who wants to go first with this one, but... The hunting experience for you, if you were to describe the emotions and what it's like out there for you personally from start to finish, how, how would you explain it to somebody who has never hunted before? Go first. Oh, me? So I'll just say something real quick. Um, I believe 100% that every human being has a hunting instinct that's in them. Would you say they're uh, a natural-born hunter? I would say, yeah, yeah. So it's super obvious. Anybody you go hunting with, no matter how much they stood against it, stood for it, or uh, their opinions on it. You know, you take a girl who says, I never, I, you know, I've guided in New Zealand for four years, and when I was there, we guided a lot of people that were even not hunters, anti-hunters, you know, everything you could ever imagine. And what I saw is when you put that rifle in their hands and you give them that mission, their whole mindset changes. And, and they grab something that's way deep inside of everybody, the natural born hunter. And, uh, the, and it brings it out when they start that pursuit because it's in our nature. And so for me, just to quick to bring it back to your answer, I think it's for me the feelings of hunting is more instinctual and um, than most anything that I partake in, you know, mm -hmm. anything that, that I do. Um, it, it's, it's in your blood as a human, I think, and, uh, and it's one of the few things that we're still able to do that is very to the basic core of, of human nature. 
Jeff. All right, Jeff, good luck following that one up. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little heavy. Sorry. That's very emotional. Yeah. No, uh, for, for me, honestly, what I get the most kick out of is, is, um, is, is understanding, like, the role that that animal plays in its space, right? Like, if you understand the niche, the role that it fills, and then you, you kill that animal, it's a lot more fulfilling to me to have learned that prior, you know? So I know what I'm doing True. exactly. You know what it is. You're taking the life of an animal, which is fine, right? Um, and it's important that that, that happens um, for a number of reasons, not only for, for us to continue to be able to feed ourselves or to have that skill set in you, um, but also so they can be managed properly, so we can understand them. How the heck are we going to know? I mean, it wasn't until 19... Like, mid 70s that we even knew how many offspring mountain lion had you know and i'd rather understand because you, you live in colorado right so the cats are, are big in the higher elevation yeah and they're different to they are in the desert sure or in parts of like the foothills they act differently right so if i go into a space and i'm like interested in like finding an animal in that space or or hunting it um, I get the most out of like when I understand what it, more more of what it is that I'm doing than less. So when you ask what it feels like to go hunting, like what you get the most out of it, that's what I get. It's constantly learning about the different species of big game animals and small game animals and the role that they play and how that all works like this. I get a huge kick out of that. And it, it's never, you know, it changes a lot. You know, one area, one year's great, next year it's awful, you know. And then you find another spot, and it's bigger and better than you ever thought possible. Whereas 10 years ago, there wasn't one animal there or something, you know? Um, so I get a kick out of that, just the actual constant pursuit, you know, of that is like, for me, is just huge. Because I know that the day that I die, I'm only going to learn so much, and I'm only going to be able to take in so much, and I'm always going to want more of that because I love doing it. So that personal fulfillment that it gives you, just the act of doing it is what I get the most out of. Yeah, but even in doing, like you said, even in doing that, going about it that way, once you've identified and you've learned and you've taken the time to figure out animals and, and how they impact their surroundings and, what, and, and wh how they're, where their place is, that's where it's, your success probably goes up because... Now you know the, de the details and the intricacies about how to be successful to take that animal or another animal in that area. Or you decide not to waste your time in that area. Exactly. Right. Yeah, but that, that process is where I think is, is what hunters need to spend the time and develop the experience doing instead of, I want to go kill something. I want to go hunting because I want to go fill my freezer. Okay, well, filling your freezer may be the end goal, the end result. But if you can identify and appreciate that middle process and, and what it takes to learn the, the species, learn, learn the surroundings, learn their habitat, learn their, their patterns, their movements, learn, learn the, what impacts different things, then in doing all that and learning all that, then filling that freezer is probably going to be a little easier to do. Or like you said, maybe you don't waste your time in that area and you move on to the next area because you know that your odds are probably way low because you've spent the time to learn it. So that's where that, that process is, I think, gets, doesn't get enough attention. And it's, it's a great, you know, that's a great uh, 
you, you, said, you most know. people I talk to too and feel a lot like that but just don't like they don't maybe don't think about that as much or realize that that's why they're doing it sure you know, I read a lot of a lot of books into too which isn't the same as actively doing something um, but my interest lies in, in educating myself on on the on those animals you know yeah no hundred percent man that's that's uh it's good to talk hunting with hunters, um, r regardless where you live or, or uh, what game you, you, you choose to hunt, you know, because at the end of the day, if you get down to the core of that, of, of appreciating the animals and learning it and taking the time, then we can, we can w everything becomes level ground. We're all talking about, we're talking apples to apples, and, and the conversation is, uh, we can relate. Man, I mean that's I guess that's just the best way to wrap it up because it's yeah, whether it's whether it's whitetail in a tree or whether it's mountain lion or whether it's sheep, you know, in 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 the mountaintops. It's uh if you're doing if the process is essentially the same, you take terrain out, you take species out, but the process essentially is the same, then yeah. we're all doing the same thing, man. We just need to appreciate that. All members yeah. of the same tribe. That's yeah, it. Absolutely. I now, agree. Do you guys do archery at all, either of you? I'm not really archery. <laughs> shot a, a fair amount. Target shot when I was a little younger, but I, I don't archery. We can we can I, work with that. Yeah, I do archery hunting. Yeah, I taken like the um, pro shooters from Matthews hunting and stuff, and hold world records and state records and. All kinds of stuff for guided archery hunts, but cool. For myself, I don't hunt much archery because I don't hunt much, right? So <laughs> if I have a half day to go hunting, I'm going to make sure I can get something, you know, and I take my rifle and because I'm hunting all the time, doing archery hunts all the time with clients. So yeah, when it's a business, it's and I've, I yeah, I get it, man. I with me owning the archery shop, I shot competitively for years, and and it seems like the more successful my business has gotten, the further along we've got, the less time I get to shoot and the less time I get to do that, you know, but, um, it's, it's part of, I guess it's, it's part of the trade-offs. Yeah. So. It is. it is, but you get to do what you love, right? We right. get to pursue our dreams and that's, you know, first and foremost, the closest bit to your heart, right? So if, if that works, then you're happy most of the time. <laughs> oh, most, you're right. You're right. <laughs> At least you're out doing it. That's I was right. saying that to, um, well, that's what I was saying earlier on the phone, Will, is that like, yeah. I'm a massive amount of experience. I don't know a lot about um, sheep hunting or guiding until the last couple of years, and I've just thrown myself in scouting year round, sure. you know, and helping Jake guide. Mm -hmm. But I get to hunt sheep, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't get to pull the trigger, but the day that I get the chance to pull the trigger, I've already been hunting sheep. Right. You know? So. It's fulfilling in that respect. So, so the video you did uh, with that tag that you you got from the, the banquet there, where was that? Where that hunt take place at? In which are we talking about the video, the wild sheep video? That yeah. We just did, did, did you did you draw? Did you get a tag for that? No, no, that was a. Uh, it was strictly a donation. You yeah. got nothing. In oh, got yeah. it. Yeah, I donate. Awesome. I donate the, the the money to the Wild Sheep Foundation. To try to, well, to try to kind of put the problem that we're having and health of sheep um, in front of people with a very simple message 
you know, and that, you know, when somebody makes a donation to the Take One Book, Put One Back program for the Wild Sheep Foundation, where that money goes, where it would go, where it could go, show people where it could go and, and have it, somebody that cares, make the donation in the video. Yeah. Not an anti-hunter, not somebody that has hunted forever, somebody that came in and, you know, went to the sheep show for the last two years only and the first time I went, I was blown away by the people that were there. Honestly, at the level of just education on wild animals, I was blown away. That, that's great, man. So I felt like it was important that, like, um, that I did something about that, like the, to the degree that I I could affect, you know. And I also thought it was important to to note that um, that that money that goes into direct conservation in the state of California for sheep. Um, the donations and, and those sales specialty tags, freaking huge, huge for um, helping manage and helping us get information that we need about that animal. Uh, so that was kind of, that was all that was. It was like a short video to expose the disease by a donation from a hunter with no hidden agenda. Oh, that's you know? great. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I misunderstood the beginning when you talked about the donation. I missed I it a little too. I didn't realize I thought it that until just now. Take, so. Well, Jake's outfit, um, Kika Outfitters, um, I got a guide for Jake. Um, we had the state tag last year, the governor's tag for sheep. So that's why we got confused. Got it. We're just saying that you had the tag for it. We we confused. You know? Yeah, we do a lot with governor's tags and, and buying tags and stuff like that. But no, what... What we did was was Jeff at Sheep Show was like, I'm going to give some money. And I was like, you're going to give money like right now? He's like, yeah, right now. And I don't want to get anything in return. I'm just blown away right now. And then he gave the money. And then so he gave the money and then the video came up. And then also additional to what the video actually states, I think it's super important that it shows that hunters like Jeff have the heart for the wildlife more so than anti-hunters and they're putting their money where their mouth is and they're putting their actions where their mouth is and we're able to show it through the video. Exactly. And people will say who are against trophy hunting or any, any hunting, I guess, really, they'll say, um, why don't you just give money then if you're that into it, if you care that much about it? And so you're actually someone who did just give money because you're that into it and that much about it. And for, for people listening, would you mind saying how much that is? Because it wasn't a small sum of money, you know. It was 15 grand. It was 15 grand, but it takes a certain amount of money to Affect perform. Real change. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't, you know, like I'm not the wealthiest guy in the world, but I'm also not the poorest guy in, in, in the world. And I didn't do it really for self-gain. I actually thought that, like I've spent many, many years working in like the action sports industry, skate, surf, snow, that whole thing. So it's, it's youth consumer and I've spent many, many years developing product and putting it to market and sometimes the message um, doesn't have to have like any goal attached to it other than the right goal, you know, which is to show people something, you know, and donations and stuff like that. You would think that they would be that, right? But then also at the sheep show, a lot, there's a lot of people there that want to make silent donations because of the stigma that's attached to, like what you just said. You know, a wealthy businessman goes, I'm going to donate 100 grand right now, but Have don't it. mention it. 
Happened the same night. Jeff gave that money. A guy gave seventy-five grand, and nobody knows who he was. Yep, and he didn't want anyone to know. And he didn't want anyone to say anything. And, and just to to clarify, the the film that that I was talking about is is on your site. It's Civilware.com, yeah. but it's it's the Wild Sheep film, and I encourage you to also, check it out. I'll post yeah, it in the show notes for this uh, episode. Yeah, it's all. It's also plays on uh, GoHunt.com. Got it. That, that's the only kind of. Uh, hunting media that, that plays the video so we partnered with those guys when we put it out so you can see it on civilware.com or you can see it on gohunt.com cool you know um you know and they do a lot of good things for western hunting um educate people on land access and all those kinds of things which is hugely important um and so you know but but you know to my to my point like you have very successful business people or people in the public eye that might be in those banquet rooms making donations or buying those big trophy tags for hundreds of hundreds of thousands of dollars, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars. And they don't want anyone to know that. Right? And that's sad. That's a beautiful thing. Especially if every penny of that goes into conservation for that particular species in that state. That's a huge amount of revenue coming to manage game animals in Wyoming or something. It's huge. So I'm okay with like, that was the side of it that I was okay with. I was okay with people coming back and saying something. Like I'm comfortable with that interaction, you know? So that, that's important that we have people that are willing to try to talk to help. Um, and that's one of the things I feel, felt confident about, felt comfortable being that kind of soundboard, you know? And if I had 400,000 free right now, I might donate it to a huge conservation project. You know, well, I mean, you know, kudos to you. You know, like I said, because it's it's something that um, like it is a big deal. It's it, we need it because the animals need it. You know, and to continue to uh, preserve our game and and hopefully have our wildlife flourish through our our benefit us benefiting them. I mean, it, it we we need to help wherever we can. Whether it's you know just putting in for your tags or or picking and researching a, a, a group, a, a, you know, organization that you feel strongly about, you want to support, maybe do it that way. You know, these banquets are also another way. But uh, um, I appreciate the time, and I, I, I don't mean to cut it. The, the conversation's awesome. Man. The family, right? Eight minutes late for dinner. I'm in I, trouble. I'm going to have to get rolling, man. I've got two kids. i got to get fed and get them ready for bed. Good. I like that. I'm in the we, same boss. Looking at the clock going six oh nine, she's gonna kill me. Six oh nine, she's gonna kill me. I got two kids too. Jake's got a little uh, gal too. We were talking earlier and saying when I was on the phone with, with Jeff, I was like, "This is gonna have to be more than one episode. We're gonna have to do more than one episode with you guys. You know, we'll have to talk more with Jake, especially about his dancing career, because I, I like, you know, nothing wrong with the man who's got moves. <laughs> I mean, you're probably not seeing this live, but we could probably set this up. This is Skype. These things can go out. Jake's a fantastic dancer. <laughs> Set the stage. Get it oh, all man. going. I like that. I like that. Maybe we can turn it into a fundraiser. All the money people <laughs> throw at Jake will go to conservation. Yeah, dancing for con- conservation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you know what else I love? A great pair of optics. Something like uh, Maven binoculars, which I know you both, all everyone here is a fan of, correct? Man, yeah, we've been blown away by. So real quick, I've guided over eighty bighorn sheep in my guiding career. So 
I've had to look through optics. I mean, I have grease stains on every binocular case I've ever had. It's, it, you know, 12 hours a day looking through binoculars. And I put my Maven binoculars, the only reason I went to Maven and, and started talking to him is because one of my guides says, look through these for today. He gave me his binoculars, said, go with these today. And he took my Swarovskis. And they were clearer, and they were sharper, and they were more vibrant. And it... It doesn't lie. To this Glass don't lie. Today, I, you know, to this day, anybody who questions me, I'm like, here, here's Swarovski's, here's the Mavens. Tell me which one is clearer and brighter and better looking. It's, un, it's unreal. Well, and, and even to that point, right, you, you talk about some guys, some hunters that we, nobody, not everybody is in the same financial category, right? I agree with you. I had some Swarovski's and I bought those Mavens and I'm looking through them side by side and I'm like, wow, these are both awesome glass, right? They're just, they are. And I was looking and I said, but these are a thousand dollars less, you know? So for the guy that's wanting top quality glass, you know, there's, there's two, two, three comp people right here telling you, yes, they, they're as good or better as the other top glass on the market yeah. at a fraction of the price because of their business model. And, you know, Will, I mean, they, they, we've, we've been fr friends with them for, for a while now. We had them on the podcast, Brandon, and, They've agreed just because they they respect what we're trying to do and our message and our listener base, and they respected that enough to give us a promo code if you're buying a full you know no discount it's just hey if you let them know who sent you you know so that way we're we're just trying to help each other out here you know we're we're giving our honest experiences. If it didn't work, you wouldn't use it, right? So that's the beauty of it. It works so. exactly, and that's where you know you type in NBH gift. And they're going to give you some swag at, at with the full par price pair of binoculars. And Did you guys see the the spotters yet? You going to pick up one of those? Yeah, we, yeah. We don't have them yet, but we checked them out at the show. Yeah, I think I'm going to run 15s this year. You know, I just I got to sheep hunt last year with myself here in Colorado for the first time, and and I spent a lot of time behind the glass, a little bit of time with the spotter, and most time with the binos. I just was so much more comfortable with the binos, and I think once uh, um, I hope they, you know, I'm not saying anything I'm not supposed to say, but once they come yeah, out... Yeah, Phil, some, you be careful. I don't want Brendan suing us for leaking stuff. Hey, it, they're, they're making progress, so it's a matter of time before they have they open up their, their product line more, and I'm just going to be the first one in line to pick up some binos if they happen to be in the 15 by category. That's all I'm saying. Yes, I'm and you know what else is great about Maven? They've caught on to the key to great products is having different camos on them, unlike some shoe companies I know of. <laughs> And also this podcast, you know, our great buddies at Mountain Ops, you know, just great, terrific guys, great company, always pushing hunting forward in a very positive light and unique ways. If you head on over there and you enter the code MBH20, they will give you 20% off of your purchase. Um, I actually had a little, I was feeling a little drowsy before we started this, so I just slipped a little Enduro in, and I'm, I'm doing just great. I'm, you know, might, might just stay up and edit this. I'm feeling so energetic, and Phil's go. also a big fan. Uh, they will be giving away some product, I believe, at Phil's Alpha Bow Hunting Tournament, which is Memorial Weekend in Denver at his shop. So if you want to come out and test your bow hunting skills, see if you really got what it takes you know, to hang with some of the best around in the area, check it out. 
head on over to Alpha Bow Hunting. Also, check out Championship Bow Hunting Podcast, which Phil covers just a lot more technical stuff uh, in the podcast. It's it's a shorter podcast, but man, he packs in some great information. I listen to him so I can educate myself. Uh, and the, really, there's not many critics tougher than Phil. He'll tear sites apart and put them back together Frankenstein style so he can get the best thing he can uh-huh. out there. I've Frankenstein some stuff before. There's no joke there, but hey, guys, uh, we appreciate the time. Real quick, Phil, what's that T-shirt? I've been staring at that T-shirt all day. What are you What are you wearing? That looks badass. So, so this is uh, a little Colorado love, right? That's uh, Freedom Apparel. The guys that do the print work for my for all my shirts at the shop and and the stuff for championship bow hunting. This is their logo. This is their design. We sell it uh, at the shop. So I believe you can go to freedomapparel.com. A veteran-owned company here in Colorado, and they do art. They do uh, screen print work. So, cool That's company. A badass shirt. And people, don't forget to head over to the QU Film Fest. Vote for our buddies. Try to support the cause. Uh, you know, push everybody forward. We can. So, tell yep. us more where we can find the knives. Yes, and, those fantastic and knives. You send me your um, address, and I'll send you guys the knives, and you can check them out. Awesome. Right. But where can everyone else check them out? What's that? <laughs> Where can everyone else check them out? Civilware.com. Civilware.com. Those, those look like the ones that are on the site now. Are they the same ones? That's the same one I picked up. That was just in Jake's pocket. Okay. Now. And those are available now then? Those are available right now. It's a, that's called the Striker model, which is a line unlocking uh, folding knife, kind of slim line with a short clip. 154 cm. And, and Jeff, I wouldn't I like mind it, if one of those orange wax canvas hats made it to match my dunks we're not doing them in real tree just so you know <laughs> that's fine, that's fine <laughs> i uh you know i can't thank you guys enough for coming on the show and i can't thank brendan enough for uh, actually helping me get in touch with you because after i saw that film and saw all the cool stuff you were doing i was like this is the guy we need to expose our audience to and thank you for bringing Jake along with you, who I'm sure will have on, you know, maybe by himself, and maybe he'll bring you along as his guest for an episode. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that'd be nice. Also, no, thank you. Appreciate it. Hey, hey, my pleasure, man. And you will be able to find all the stuff we talked about in the show notes. I'm actually going to do a better job at that because it's awful convenient when all this stuff is together in one place, and you can go and click over on it. So I'll have the links down there. Uh, any extra information we said we'd be in there will be in there. Also, please subscribe to uh, YouTube, Natural Born Hunter, Instagram, Phil Mendoza, Jeff Rowley, uh, Kiku. Is it Kiku yeah. the Instagram account? Yeah. I follow it, but I can't remember how. I don't know Kiko. how to pronounce it. Kika. 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 Worldwide. Awesome. Why the Instagram? They have some great Instagram pictures. So does Civilware and Jeff's Instagram page. All the Facebook stuff. Uh, leave us a positive rating. Nice comments over on iTunes if you can. That'll help us out. Um, I guess that's it. I think we covered everything. Hopefully, yeah, no one gets know. in trouble for okay. being too late. What's that? Let, it, let us know, and we'll come on again when you know when it's a good time for everybody. Heck yeah! Heck yeah! Get a, get a couple of beers going. <laughs> just a couple I'm only there you two. go <laughs> just a couple and for the natural born hunter podcast wake up chase your dreams repeat